0: l-d-e-j-a-n-e-i-r-o and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com/results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com/results. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
3: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. People were very distrusting of this young 20 something year old trying to command these larger contracts, five, six figure contracts and seven figure contracts. And on top of that, I was a woman. And on top of that, I was black. And I just been always very interested in like if something doesn't exist that you feel should be like started.
4: You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-O'Kome. So let's get started. Today's episode is brought to you by Gusto. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll benefits and HR to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag. And as a Side Hustle Pro listener, you will get three months free when you run your first payroll. So sign up and give it a try at gusto.com slash SHP. That's Gusto.com slash SHP. Hey, hey, guys. Welcome, welcome back to the show. Stay in the guest chair. I have someone who I have been spying on for quite some time finally reached out. Her name is Savitra Wilson, and she is the founder and CEO of New Orleans-based technology startup Resilia, formerly Exempt Me Now, that she founded in 2015 to revolutionize how nonprofits are created and maintained and how enterprises who deploy billions annually scale impact. She's raised over 2 million for her startup to date, making her the first black woman in New Orleans to raise over 1 million in venture capital and one of only 11 black women to raise over 3 million. Man, I can't believe I'm still saying those numbers, right? 11 <laughs> black women. <laughs> okay, and Savitra is also the founder of Solid Ground Innovations, LLC, a strategic communications and management firm that she founded in 2009. So Savitra, you have founded not one, but two companies in your 20s. Wow. I mean, what started you down this entrepreneurial
3: path? You know, I think that for me, I always just had this entrepreneurial like spirit about me. Um, even in college, I always use Solid Ground Innovations as my first company that I talk about. Um, but when I was 19, I guess I could consider my first venture being an online newspaper that was called Be Now, Black News Are Away. And so that was like my first uh, entrance into just this entrepreneur uh, journey and starting something. And I have just been very, always very interested in like, if something doesn't exist that you feel should be, like start it. Did you do anything entrepreneurial when you
4: were growing up or was it mainly like in your college years that you felt just licensed to just go out there and try
3: things? Yeah, I think that it was mostly my college years. But so my father owned um, a cement company um, growing up, but my father passed away very early um, in my life when I was only seven and so I would always like hear stories about how he used to, you know, employ these men who would be a part of his team and do a lot of uh, different projects and works and how he kind of built that company. Um. And so I think that I always kind of had it in me, you know, I don't know if there's like this, there's this belief whether or not, you know, you are born into this, this mindset or you kind of create it. I think it's been a little bit of both for me.
4: Okay. So you went to LSU and you started, um what was it called? Be Black Be now.
3: now? yeah, so it was B now. Be black now Our way. And it was a way for me to bring um black writers from Southern University, which was our local HBCU and black writers from LSU, where I was a student, together to write about just common things that we experienced as black people just in Baton Rouge, just college students, because I felt this huge divide. Um, between the students on both campuses um, and one which that I felt we had way more in common. Hello, we're black, right? Right. (laughs) We're out here in the same path and they have to go through the same doors. And so I just felt that in general, I wanted to really, really, really like bring um, us together. And that's why I created Be Now to do that. And I was a writer at the time for the local college paper.
4: Interesting. So were you majoring in journalism?
3: Yes. So my major and, uh, was mass communication, journalism. And so when I first started out, I had a dual degree, uh, a, a B.A. in history. And so if you told me then, I would have told you that I was going to be this uh, historical film um, documentary and I was going like, to have all these different projects going as it related to journalism and history and tie those things together. So not quite what I'm doing now.
4: (laughs) Okay, so we have to talk about this pivot. At what point did your path to journalism change, and you decide to actually start Solid Ground Innovations?
3: Yeah. So I um, had a professor named Leonard Moore. Uh, He's at Austin UT Austin now, and he just honed in on the idea. that you don't watch, you don't have to watch the clock when you do things that you love to do and you can build anything. You can be really passionate about the things um, that you build and you can get paid, too. Right. So the idea that all these things could align. Um, and I think like that is really what kind of sparked my entrepreneurial journey um, and really kind of pushed me into that space. But I was working at a nonprofit called Louisiana Casa court-appointed Special Advocates for Children who are in and out of foster care. And I had created a campaign essentially to um, create more black male volunteers, because although the majority of the children in and out of foster care that we were servicing were black boys, the majority of the volunteers were white women. And, you know, that's something that was fundamental um, mishap or mistake that we were not attracting more black males. And so I created a campaign. The campaign was grossly successful and people from other organizations, from other spaces started reaching out to me to see if I was interested in doing consultancy work. And so that is what drove me to start Solid Ground Innovations. Um, I left my full time job and began to do consultancy work. And I started building curriculum programs, um, curriculum design for organizations and specifically nonprofit organizations. Um, Started working with uh, the Tiger Athletic Foundation and LSU. Then they started introducing me to um, professional athletes who had foundations. And so I started managing and running um, the foundations of professional athletes, which took me all across the country. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of like really what started my career.
4: Oh, wow. So your first job out of undergrad was for the foundation. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like that built up on the side. Now, at what stage, though, did you know it's, it's OK for me to quit and go full time at this point? Had you had a few campaigns that were over a certain amount, you know, five figures or four figures that you said, OK, I can maintain this every month. I should I have these clients on retainer.
3: Yeah. So for me, it was definitely still a risk making the leap, but I was making about $50,000, right? Um, And that was like $50,000 a year in consultancy. And that was what um, made me comfortable enough to take the leap and do it full time. I mean, that's that's a pretty good side gig, I would say. Yeah, 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 And that was like, you know, relationships I had built on. This, and I was like, OK, if, if I can get this, if I can get this, then I'll, you know, I'll leave um, my business full time. And I got there. Right. And mm-hmm. like really small contracts along the way to get there. Um, but yeah, that was like the, the deciding um, factor that allowed me to like leap into um, starting my own company. And let's
4: qualify the leap too. So was it six months of side hustling or was it more like, okay, after a year, after your first year making that, you said, you know what, I can I can do this?
3: Yeah, I know. about eight months to a year I took the leap. And you had to realize, so I was like I was twenty two when I started my first company. Um and so you're just like, you're more risky that young. And so, you know, probably had I been older, I would have been like, Oh no, this is not enough money. This is and so there's so many other things that came into play. Um, But, you know, I started my first company when I was 22. And so, you know, at that point, you know, it was like, okay, this is my life. What am I going to make of it? And um, had come from really like humble beginnings where, you know, I didn't have a lot then and I was living very, um, just very like lean and very resourceful at the time as well.
4: And what was a day in your life like at that point? What was your role? Were you the central person in the business? Did you have interns at that time? Were you working on every single aspect of these campaigns?
3: Yes, I was killing myself, <laughs> essentially for like peanuts, honestly. Um, But yeah, I, I was the person and it was just me. And I was consultant, consulting by myself um, until I started building my team. Um, but early on, you know, I didn't have a lot of overhead. It was just me doing small contracts, working for individuals um, and knocking out projects uh, one by one. And I think one of the biggest key things I was tell people I'm a big proponent of like reoccurring revenue. Right. Um, and I just like locked in these year contracts and was like delivering on the scope of work and just kind of trying to make it happen. So I want to go back a
4: little bit to the client part. And, and you know, you even brought up the age thing because. I was wondering about that. You know, it's something that starting out at, at 22 and building something, was age ever a factor either for you or for your clients in in terms of either you have an imposter syndrome or them not fully trusting your capabilities?
3: Absolutely. I think that for me early on, you at 22, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. And I think that Um, there's so much I had to learn along the way. And I learned a lot from my failure and error. And so early on, those clients that took like the first risk, you know, by even hiring me, they believed that I brought something um, just tangible that was like fresh and that was new. And that was definitely of this millennial generation that was rising, that they felt um, I could do things that weren't necessarily the way they used to do things and um, really shake things up. But on the opposite end, when we started going after larger contracts, it became very apparent that people were very distrusting of this uh, you know, young 20-something-year-old trying to command these larger contracts, five, six-figure contracts, and seven-figure contracts. And on top of that, I was a woman. And on top of that, I was black. And so I definitely felt um, the challenges across the board. And, and many times, you know, it felt like we were never going to just get past those things. And we continuously um, run into those things today. I'm much older um, and much experienced. Um, but then it was definitely um, very critical uh, to us being able to maneuver the way we did. Although, you know, you had like white men who were coming out of their dad's um, companies or they were just graduating college and they didn't have any issues with getting some of the same type of contracts that we were going after. Uh, but definitely creating that uh, level of trust was something that I knew I had to do very early on.
4: And how did you push past that to grow this company to a multimillion dollar company? Cause I mean, that is huge. So first of all, how long did that take? And then, yeah, how did you push past the um, skepticism?
3: Yeah, and so for me, I think that, honestly as a black woman, I feel like you never really push past it all the way. It's like, it just, it kind of morphed into something else. Um, but I think it's also about being able to get referrals underneath your back, uh, underneath your belt, and being able to have people that vouch for you, um having people that actually speak and give referrals on your behalf. And a lot of our early work came from actually um, referrals from previous customers, from previous clients, um what we were doing. And so I think that you know if you can get solid referrals, that's how you can really build uh, your your uh, client base.
4: So now let's transition a little bit to the actual growth of that company. And I know that Resilia kind of was a spinoff from it. So let's talk about Solid Ground and when you started to employ a team. You know, what was that experience like going from pretty much almost just coming out of college and now you are hiring people for your own business?
3: Yes. So my first hire was actually one of my... Uh, line sisters. And so she had also just graduated. And generally people say, you know, don't hire people, your friends and all this other stuff. But she was just solid. I mean, in college, she was solid logistical. Um, She was just like a wonder woman um, with anything to deal with logistics and just so organized. And she was actually my first hire. And I went to her and I was like, hey, do you want to join me? I'm trying to build this company. And she was like, sure, let's do it um and sometimes you just need like a generalist on your team someone that's going to just get stuff done and you know she was that person for me and from there we started going after um we started getting certifications so we started uh, getting certifications that would allow us to be like listed whether that was as a small business owner small um woman business owner um a disadvantaged business owner so we started accumulating all these certifications um, we started devising a plan as how we begin to navigate cities um, and go after those type of contracts, um, larger nonprofit organizations like Kellogg Foundation, and we contracted the contract, we just started winning them and began to like grow our team. Um, but it took us a couple years to get really going. Um, and that's just because we just didn't know what we didn't know. We had to uh, figure out so much about what was the right course of action we needed to take, what our proposal should look like, what our capabilities needed to look like, what our team looked like. So it was definitely a process. And was
4: it kind of like the chicken for the egg, the egg for the chicken? I mean, when you hired her, were you paying her right away or was it like because she was a friend, you could say, Hey, I I can pay you in a few months.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So Here's the thing, people ask me this all the time from like my first company to my tech company, I've never asked anyone to work for free ever. I love that. And even I'm I'm the same way in that in that sense, I just can't find
4: it in me to ask anyone to work for free. But that said, what kind of work, once you started hiring people, what did you prioritize? Now, and, and I think this is a good time to tell us a little bit more about Solid Ground and, and the capabilities that you guys actually had. So were you hiring social media managers? Um, what kind of campaigns were you working on and, and what skill sets did you need?
3: Yes. Yeah, so we um, eventually became a strategic communications and management firm. And so we were doing core marketing marketing. Uh, advertising, media buying, public relations, so true agency type of setting. And so our first um, Shayla was more like operations manager, right? So she just made sure that stuff was in place, the processes were in place, that you know once we started running payroll, that that was accurate, that we were reporting taxes on time, like stuff that can like cripple a business if you don't have processes in place early on. And then from there, we hired uh, what became my first assistant, Christine, who kind of started taking over some of the operational roles so that Shayla could be freed up to do um, some of the client management and oversight. Mm And so she was on that side, whether that was uh, executing programs, um, whether that was doing um, events, media buying. We brought in um, a media buyer on our team just part time um, to do some of the media buying that we had to do for some of our clients. And so we started very at the very bottom. Right. When we were hiring, when we were hiring and kind of built up from there. I think that sometimes people start very top heavy, right? And so they go out and they get very, you know, people that are very expensive and it's kind of hard for a company um to manage those type of large salaries and large payments to people. And I always tell people like start from the bottom and like do what you can and just get capable people who are scrappy and who can learn really fast. In um, different environments, but if you start top heavy, it can be really difficult for your company, um, particularly early on, if you don't have access to uh, capital and resources um, to continue to you know thrive. And so, I'm definitely of like the belief that you know start small and begin to like grow from there. Um, and so, yeah, that's like definitely was like the starting point of like our hiring and how we began. And you know, being very true to our services around like marketing, um, strategic communications, PR. Some of our clients included like Community Coffee. We created their entire CSR platform of how they give as a company and um, their corporate structure um, as it related to like their philanthropic efforts. Um, At Nobeta Health, which is a Fortune 100 company, we were one of the first people that they hired when they started doing advertising in Louisiana through their Medicaid program. We assisted them to pick their partners, their community um, organizations they gave money to. We did all of their billboard uh, advertising, their radio, you name it. So that's what
4: really is just so impressive about what you were able to build. You talked earlier about some of the kind of roadblocks and things that you had to get through. But at the same time, you were able to work with such amazing brands, really instrumental in their strategy. What do you think set your small startup apart?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like for Aetna, that's what I tell people all the time about, about just like being present. Um, I'm a person that really believes in relationships and being at the table and just like showing up. Because a lot of times when people are looking for people that, to contract, yeah, they have people in mind, but then also people are sourcing people through their networks and who they know and who can introduce them to people. Um, but then also sometimes um, these large corporations have to ensure that they're hiring, whether that's diversity um, companies that have shown diversity or can be in communities. And for example, with Edna Better Health, they're out of Connecticut, trying to build a team in Louisiana. Um, And they went to the Louisiana Economic Development website and they pulled up all of the companies that had Hudson certification. And so obviously Hudson certification means that your company is in a certain area in Louisiana that they deemed is like um, in a recovery area. Um, And so they picked out six companies. My company was one of them to like interview and to request proposals from. And they said, you know, we really loved your company because we felt that you all were very close to the community. Like you knew people in the community, you knew the nonprofits, you knew the the public um, officials, like you guys are literally in the community every day. And that's why we felt that we didn't want to just put up billboards, but we want to have these relationships. And we felt that your company was the best to provide us with those relationships. And we were a small company, you know, that end the contract was one of our largest contracts that we had received at that time. And, uh, you know, they picked us over agencies that were like five, six, seven times our size.
4: That is amazing. And speaking of certifications, just so people really understand the opportunities that are out there. One, how did you learn about these certifications and what are some of the top certifications that you want Black women entrepreneurs to look into in their their respective states?
3: Yes, so you first of all, go to your economic development office um, at your state level and even at your city level as well. And begin to really understand how to do procurement and how to like source opportunities through your state and through your city level, because everybody's hiring for stuff. Right. So the city has to hire for design. They have to hire for printing. They have to hire for janitorial services. And so all these key things that they're hiring for and they're putting out proposals. And but you have to understand how to go after those things. And. At the state level, that's where you find the resources that the state has put aside through your taxpayer dollars um, to help small businesses grow in your state. And so you find for us, it's the small business director and he's the person that can guide you and tell you, yes, like these are free resources that you can use. In Louisiana, like they would pay for half of your cost around your marketing materials and you could literally go and find the consultant you want get them to sign up with LED, uh, Louisiana Economic Development, and then they would pay for half of your cost for that marketing person for you. And so these are like resources that people don't even realize exist, um, that literally their taxpayer dollars go towards every single year. Um, and so some of the certifications that we have in Louisiana was like Hudson Initiative, um, which was a certification, meaning that if you were in areas, if your business were located in areas Um, that they deemed were recovering, which we were like in this area called Mid-City. And so we were Hudson Hudson Initiative um, certified. Um, Then there's DBE, Disadvantaged Business Owner, uh, which that's a certification that people have in many, many, many cities across the country um, where you are a woman, you are a person of color, and your company makes uh, less than X amount of dollars a year that you can apply for. And there are certain um, certain projects where they have requirements. So they may have a DBE a requirement that the person that gets this contract has to be DBE certified and um or a DBE has to be a part of a project a larger project um at the federal level there's 8a certifications and then there is um opportunity zones and so there are so many different things that i think that as business owners we can kind of equip ourselves with um, particularly as women where we can see take advantage of being a woman or being a person of color to access opportunities Um, that generally would be harder for us to access if we didn't have uh, those additional tools.
4: Love it. Thank you. Thank you for that breakdown. So now let's transition into you starting Resilia. Why did you decide to start Resilia and what does it entail?
3: Yeah, so Resilia was actually a spinoff of a product uh, line of my first company, Solid Ground Innovations. Um, And so early on, we were actually servicing nonprofit organizations from everything from um, incorporation to helping nonprofits get their exemption status to then providing capacity on the back end for nonprofits. Um, As we began to grow as a professional services company, we could no longer really afford to service uh, nonprofits the way we were because we just didn't have the manpower. But I felt that there was opportunity to essentially productize our services and deliver it on demand through a software um, platform. And so that company first um, came to life as Exit Me Now, and now we rebranded to Resilia. And so it literally came out of another company, um, our previous company, and we just knew that there was an opportunity to utilize technology to drastically advance the work that we were doing and also solve some of the problems that we were having on the consultancy side. Um, and so basically we were like, how do we productize ourselves?
4: So two things there, why why the name change from Exempt Me Now to Resilia?
3: Yes, yeah, so when we first started and launched to the public in November, 2016, um, we originally set out to do something really simple, and that was to expedite the incorporation and exemption process for uh, nonprofit organizations um, and then create one um, essentials tool uh, where people could essentially access all the documents that they needed to get their organization going. And so obviously, you know, exempt Me Now speaks to that. Right. This process of getting you where you need to go as quickly as possible um, so you can like do the work of your organization. Um, But over time, what we found was that we really needed to expand. uh, We had the opportunity to expand our SaaS business model um, and expanding it, meaning that Not only could we cater to grantees or existing nonprofits, but there was an opportunity, a much larger opportunity to cater to those who deploy capital. So you have all these cities and these private foundations and these corporations who are deploying billions of dollars to nonprofits, to cities. They even have nonprofits underneath cities that they've created to do work and fulfill their mission um, of the mayor or the city council members. And so we wanted to begin to create solutions of how they were managing funding, um, how they were deploying it, and then the oversight and compliance around that. And the name Exit Me Now no longer spoke to those solutions. Got Um, it. Yeah. And so we would go out and be like, oh, we're Exit Me Now we're my city we're like, huh? Like what? This doesn't make sense. And like and then we had to tell them the backstory of exit Me Now. And so we're like, okay, we need to just rebrand. <laughs> well, what do you mean
4: when you say, Okay, so clearly it's very understandable when you talk about exempt Me Now and, and It sounds like you went from helping nonprofits do all the stuff that wasn't in line in their business. And that kind of started to fall on you as you're trying to help them market and realize, oh, we don't have all these things in place. But now when you're working with the companies that deploy capital to Mm -hmm. nonprofits, what is it that you're helping them to do with the software as a service?
3: Yeah, and so we always say that we're helping these larger entities scale impact, right? And so you work in cities and um, cities, they're definitely um, strained with capacity and the things that they're doing. And most of those individuals don't necessarily have a background in nonprofits, although there are several nonprofits that are created inside of cities. And so it's like being able to bring transparency, oversight and management to the vendors who receive money inside of cities, to the nonprofits that receive money um, to provide those those skills and education and oversight and compliance um, and streamline all of that inside a technology platform. Currently cities are still using Excel sheets, right? They're still sending out emails, requesting people to send back things and Word documents. And so we're like, how do we get a grip around this and bring it all together? Um, We always used to say in city government that if you want to find the biggest scandal, follow the money. Right. Mm. So management of public dollars.
2: Okay. Right?
3: <laughs> and so we're basically saying utilize our software and you can eliminate those issues. You can streamline the process in how you're deploying capital. You can utilize information to pull down reports on demand, to pull down data on demand that we're collecting across all these programs, initiatives that you're doing um, by utilizing our software Uh, You get a customer success person that ensures you understand how to utilize the technology and that you're using it for your benefit um, as a SaaS platform. And so we're doing not only that in cities, but also for private foundations who have to give directly to grantees um, by providing them a management software tool to use, but then they also can issue all these educational benefits, a premium subscription to their grantees to be able to use as well. Um, And so the enterprise side of Resilia is something that is like really kind of taking off. Um, and honestly, is probably the largest opportunity of the company that exists today.
4: Okay. The
3: problem that you're
4: really solving for, just to make this really, really clear, is there a lack of transparency among both the people, the foundations that give money and the people who get the money? So does your platform help them to kind of follow the trail of, well, one, Simplify the application system to get mm-hmm. that grant, and then actually simplify the process of the foundations giving people money, understanding what happened to the money. And, you know, is that the vein of it all?
3: Yes. And then also to provide that CRM management tool for both sides. Okay. And so, you know, you have, we believe there's silos that exist from the side of individuals who have the money and then those who are getting the money. And so our dashboard, not only do those enterprise customers receive a dashboard, but then those who they give money to also receive their own dashboard and they actually communicate with each other. Love it. Uh, So it's really about bringing the sector together so that we can collectively make impact happen at scale and so that we can close the dots to make change happen faster um, by utilizing data-driven metrics around it, by utilizing reporting, by increasing transparency and oversight. Um, Yeah, so that everybody is aligned with what's happening in organizations and then on the ground in communities.
4: Hey guys, it's Nikayla here with a quick word from our sponsors. If you have a business or you know someone who does, you probably know by now that small business owners, we wear a lot of hats. And some of those hats are mad fun, I'm not going to lie. But some of them like filing taxes and running payroll, they're not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for us small businesses. It's fast with simple payroll processing benefits and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about all that. Plus, they make it easy to add on things like health benefits and even 401ks for your team. So those old school clunky payroll providers that you probably thought you had to look at, they just weren't built for the way we work as modern small businesses, but Gusto is. So let them wear all of those hats for you. You have better things to do. Side Hustle Pro listeners, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So test it out. See for yourself at Gusto.com slash SHP. That's Gusto.com slash SHP. Have you guys seen the clip of Magic Johnson quitting his job as president of the Lakers via press conference rather than telling his boss straight up, y'all, please don't be like Magic. Don't let the crazy at work cause you to make a hasty decision and leave your job before you're ready. Instead, open up your podcast app and subscribe to the Trail MBA show. You can even search for it right now while you're listening to me. If you're looking for a show that's going to help you thrive and navigate corporate America while you're side hustling and come out on top, this is the show for you. Host Felicia is the trillest MBA you will ever meet, and she is all about telling the truth and keeping it real about surviving and thriving. That's the most important part, thriving in corporate America. I want y'all to go to work and be happy and find joy and find a way to do what you love. So check out episodes like Stop Skipping the Work Happy Hour, okay? Those are important. And take comfort in the fact that you're not alone in this journey. It can be tricky, but let's talk about it. Felicia gives real and actionable tips to navigate those tough combos, those situations, and people at work. Just search for The Trill MBA Show in your podcast app and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, do you find that sometimes as entrepreneurs, when we create a solution, the people who are used to doing it their own way. Especially in nonprofits. I've worked within nonprofits. <laughs> They're used to doing it their way. Your idea might be wonderful, but that involves a lot of change, right? So how do you get buy-in and and how do you help people understand that this is a big problem and we can actually fix this and it won't be a huge lift to fix it?
3: Yes. And so one thing that we knew was going to be needed and you know, why we're more of a SaaS platform is that um, similar to like HubSpot, where they have like this customer on, success onboarding period, so to teach individuals the technology, we saw that that was definitely missing, that people just didn't understand a lot of times how to utilize the technology in front of them. But then for nonprofits who are technology adverse, like how can we simplify, right, to so make it easy, automate, reduce um, the pains of the technology, and increase the capacity being delivered to that organization as a whole? Um, I think that it's been apparent that, you know, the the issues are very prevalent and that there is something that needs to be done and a solution that people are calling upon. Um, But it's like, oh, will people utilize the technology? And so for us, We're betting on one, not only are people going to use it, but they will use it because people are looking for technology solutions in the space. But we also believe that there is a emergence of a more equipped and capable leadership of nonprofits, like just rising in the country um, of people who are there's a reason why there's more nonprofits being started more and more and more and more than ever before. It's because some people are saying, oh, I could do this, but better utilizing the things that I know and have learned. Um, there's a reason why colleges now have a nonprofit administration um, concentration in their MBA programs. And so we believe there's a culture shift that's going to happen um, as well. And just like the type of leadership that begins to infiltrate nonprofits and um, technology is going to be a part of that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think that we're working in a very great area, which oftentimes is where we believe disruption actually happens. And by getting like larger organizations and foundations and corporations to buy into it, um, we're looking to create that network effect that kind of trickles down as well.
4: And were you able to invest your own money into starting Resilia, since it was kind of a spinoff from Solid Ground?
3: Yeah. So when I first started Resilia, you know, you're starting a tech company, you know, software is the idea, but unlike a professional services company, you know, it costs money to build tech. It's expensive to build software. Um, And so I, you know, reinvested, you know, money that I had made from running Solid Ground Innovations at a time where people were like, that's crazy. You know, you just need to stick with Solid Ground Innovations. But I just felt like we really had something with Resilia and something that was like scalable um and so I you know took the risk to invest a significant amount of money into Resilient getting off the ground before I even raised any money from other people. Um and unfortunately I think that for um black entrepreneurs like we don't have that opportunity uh to do that and our ideas just never get off the ground period because you have to be so de-risk before people take a chance on us.
4: Yes. And when when you say a significant amount of money what kind of money are we talking about here?
3: Oh, like seven figures type of money. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say six figures.
4: Now, as you started investing that, how did you start building out the team to build the software? Where did you go? Did you start with local New Orleans, you know, engineers there? How did you start?
3: Yeah, so we built, so I had the, this concept, you know, my my uh, marketing director um, at SGI at the time was like, let's go visit my friend um, Ishmael in San Francisco. He could probably help you bring this idea to life. And so I flew out to San Francisco and over a few days, I created what became a specifications deck, which is like the plan, right? With wireframes of what this would be. I came back to Louisiana, began to look for engineering team, definitely failed the first time looking for engineering team uh, because I'm not a technical founder. So that's another strike against me um, particularly from an investor standpoint. And so I finally found the team that built, um, that helped me build, uh, the company. And then I began to like build out my the rest of my team here in new Orleans. Um, and so my software engineers, not only are in-house, but we also have some offshore. Um, so outside the, outside the country, but majority of our team is here in new Orleans. I love that you were
4: able to to find people within New Orleans. Like I know it was a struggle at first, but mm-hmm. that you were able to start finding that footing. And so why did you decide to raise?
3: Yeah, so I, you know, when we kind of launched the public, I was like, okay, you know, our head has been down, we've been like building traction, we've had some revenue, and I felt that we were in a good place to go out and raise capital, but also like I know what it's like to bootstrap a company and I know what a bootstrap company looks like. I also know now even more so what a scalable company looks like and what is needed to scale a company. Um, and so Resilia, it was always supposed to be a high growth, fast, scalable company, which if you're going to do it, you need resources to do it, generally venture, um, venture capital right and so i went out to raise capital and you know initially i kind of like fell on my face because i didn't have i realized i didn't have the relationships yeah how um, did
4: you even identify funding sources without those relationships
3: yes um so i started going to um flying out to san francisco i started like going kind of like on a conference route, like meeting people organically. I started like connecting with like founders who began to like make introductions, but it was like really, really hard um, early on because no, like nobody knew who I was. I lived in new Orleans, you know, all the, the key things, right. I was black, baby, all these other key things that were like working against me. Um, and then I had to always kind of be on the road. I think that for us, we started kind of having a breakthrough when we first got our lead investor and the first person that was like, "Okay, I'm in." Um, and then from there, things started to really pick up. Um, but it took us a long time to like really get going, like months and months and months and months and months, to like really get going on raising capital.
4: And what, what phase was Resilia in at this point? You said you launched, was this a, a minimal viable product at this so point? Oh, we were beyond that. You were beyond, beyond. a full-out yeah. platform that people can so use. We were a
3: full-out platform. We had customers in over 30 states. I mean, you know, like I always say when it comes to us, you know, like white men can have an idea. We have to have proof. Uh, yes. So we got to have some solid proof. And even that, you're still struggling. You know, you're like, you can have the customers, you could have done market research. You could right. have. You have product. to get it all together.
4: So, speaking of that, how were you preparing your pitches? Did you have advisors that you were working with? Were you practicing running through those pitches? And, and then what were the meetings like when you actually got into those rooms?
3: Yeah. And so, you know, we had gone through like this program called power moves and um had got some introductions there related to how we prepare a pitch um how we put together like the key slides we needed and so people were kind of like coaching um, me on those key things and so when i got into some of the rooms my earlier rooms were more of like a collective of angels right so these like angel network groups where it's literally just high worth individuals in a room um which early on that's what most people raise their money from high work, um high net individuals but those are like the hardest people also to raise money from because they have their own biases and you know I was going in rooms pitching to like all white men like they were bankers real estate guys and I'm just like oh my goodness i already, you already know when you're starting from a point of <laughs> of disadvantage right mm-hmm. and so that was definitely the feeling going into those meetings um and it was one of those like awakenings, like, oh man, like I get it. Like I get what everyone keeps saying about how hard it is, um, for like black women to raise money and why it's that way. Um, and so for me, I would just had to be like really resilient about just like my, um, fortitude with like keeping, keep going, like keep going after all the no's, all the like, you know, we've come back to us when you've hit this, This mark, right? Or come back to us when you hit this milestone. And, you know, it's just definitely a very um, tiring journey raising capital.
4: Was there a point where you felt like you just had traction? And then from there, it was kind of like it just picked up because I've heard you say, so you had a 400,000 pre seed round. And then,
3: you know, overall, you've raised how much now? Over 2 million? Yes. So, um, closer to to 3 million now. Um, but yeah, I would say like, you know, now, right. I think that it's easier for us to get introductions. It's easier for us to get in front of investors. We receive inbound from investors now, right. People asking us, oh, when are you going to raise more money? Um, and so I do think that there is like a magic number but even with that, it still doesn't happen like easy. Right. And now we've built relationships with our current investors who vouch for us and who um, have been, um, you know, very in tune to helping us get to our next um, our next fun- funding round when we decide to raise um, more capital. And so. I don't necessarily think it gets easier, but I think that you've just become more experienced and the mistakes that I made even a year ago, I just wouldn't make today.
4: Speaking of that experience, what do you know now that you wish you'd known before you even started down that path of building resilience and and raising funds?
3: Um, For me, I would have definitely won taking more time with even like just nurturing relationships on, um, the venture capital front for sure, but also being in tune to like what I absolutely need um, to run uh, and scale a company. Um, And so like I talk to founders all the time about, you know, making the wrong hires early in tech companies, Um, the inexperience around hiring, the inexperience around what you need to go to market And so, like, those are some of the mistakes that I think I learned along the way that are like really costly to companies. And uh, a lot of startups fail because of like just costly early mistakes uh, that they make. And so, just being like really in tune to your product market fit and how you like keep costs like really, really low, but still get to some type of um, MVP uh, and traction as best as you can.
0: O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, soldegeneiro.com, and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.
2: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health
4: insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer
0: flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
4: And how did you transition out of Solid Ground Innovations? Where Did you sell the company? Did you uh, step down as the leader? Does it still exist?
3: Yes, so Solid Ground Innovations still exists. Um, my partner runs the day to day and I stepped out of it uh, full time last March, March before that actually, yeah. Okay,
4: so what's the difference? What, what do you think is the key difference between getting Solid Ground off the ground versus Resilia, for example, how do you gain clients for Resilia versus gaining clients for SGI?
3: Yeah. You know, someone had made a comment on Twitter recently and they were like, Oh, what's the difference between, um, a startup founder and a small business owner. And the person was like ambition. I was like ambition. That's crazy. <laughs> I, was like, I was like wrong answer. because It's definitely not ambition. Um, uh, that's not it. You know, I was like, I, Coming from someone that's done both, yeah. you have to have an ambition to do either one. Um, the resources that it takes to do uh, run a small business and grow a small business and a startup um, technology startup are just different. You just need so many different resources. You need people. Your attorneys look different. Um, the type of capital um, looks different. The type of technical support is different. It's just like a different type of uh, animal that you're trying to build. Um and because of that, you just need a larger volume of things. And because I went from selling professional services where I was building my client base um city by city, um, locally, and then we had some, you know, national clients as well for Solid Ground Innovations, I that company to me was never gonna be bigger than like a 10 million dollar company. Whereas Resilia, like, you know, we're trying to build a billion dollar company. And so the thought around like what it takes to get there, the type of um, capital infusion it takes to get there. Um, we sell across all 40 cities, all 40 uh, states, and hopefully to get to all 50 states soon. And, you know, you have to build technology that can um, scale really fast. And we go after those clients through uh, direct uh, enterprise marketing and direct sales, but we also have a robust online and retargeting strategy. You know, we have customers where I don't even know a lot of my customers personally, because that's not, you know, how you do, that's not the way scaling a company works. And, you know, we get customers in our sleep and we, our customers go through our platform and file on their own. And so it's all about automation, 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 um, and pushing people through a, a process to get them in, on board it um, and about staying as lean as possible and being able to scale a company without a massive amount of people, um, which as Solid Innovations, Innovation like you needed people to execute those contracts that we were getting.
4: You know, what's really interesting to me is you mentioned that Solid Ground Innovations was probably no more than a $10 million company. And as someone who started with humble beginnings, myself included, you know, at one point, ten million might have sounded amazing, right? Like, oh my <laughs> gosh, to make yeah. $1 million. When did you make that mental shift to start thinking, okay, this company is great, but it's time to think bigger?
3: Yes. Um, I always tell people, you know what? They shouldn't have never exposed me. You know? They like, <laughs> shouldn't never show me what real money looks like. like. I was like, oh, that's what y'all over here doing. You know, like, these are the type of contracts y'all landing. You know, like, it was just like exposure. And I received a lot of exposure for some of my clients. Like, one of my clients where SGI was like one of the three most wealthiest people in Louisiana. He was like one of the only, one of three billionaires here. And like, just being able to glean into like that world and seeing like what what people are talking about at their tables, right? And the type of numbers that they're crunching and the type of way they're getting to it, it just like revealed this whole new world to me um, about like wealth, like what really is wealth. And that's something that I'm personally just uh, moved by is the creation of black wealth and the creation of wealth like in our communities. And I believe that that happens through businesses and the ability to employ people that look like you and the ability for them to employ people because they have learned so much they now they can start their own business. Like my um, client, he was like, yeah, in my company, I've made 32 millionaires. Nice. Right. To be like, that's crazy. Like, not not you making, like people are, we're, so caught, we're caught up in the idea of becoming a millionaire. Like next level thinking is about helping other people become millionaires because that's how much you got. You know, like how much what you've done has created. And like, that's where, that's what I want my legacy to be. I want to be able to create, help create millionaires, you right.
4: know? And what's also interesting is, and, you know, I really, love your story for this because you still you still put in the work right that you can you can be exposed to something and realize oh man like I want to be doing this thing but in order to do that you first had to do the work of a business that required more manpower required you to kill yourself and put in all these hours working on these multiple brand campaigns so that you would have that capital to invest in that next business that's going to take next level funding to get yes. that next next level revenue
3: yeah and then like even with sgi like we could have just like been like keep going kept going and i was like all right and then i'm gonna reinvest everything i made and do it again you know like i was like telling people like that even i look back on that like man like that was that's crazy (laughs) like to tell like a black founder someone that you know my mom made Single family household. Where my mom was assistant manager at Kmart, making twenty seven thousand dollars a year. That I'm going to be able to have ability to reinvest a million dollars, my own money, and actually do it. Like what? Crazy. At risk into something that could fail. Um, but just kind of get realigned to like what I feel like my purpose and legacy, and what those risks look like. And mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with my mentor recently about it, and I was like, man, you know, like I, I've done enough. And I have enough contacts, enough resources that honestly, I could probably do very little today and make about $300,000 a year and do, you know, and just like live a comfortable life, you know, and not really do a lot, honestly. like, Because <laughs> like, like I've built enough, a bigger, a large enough war chest to be able to do that yeah. with people who trust me and believe in me and like would pay me that type of money to just like consult. And he was like, yes, but that's not how you build wealth. One, two, that's not what people like you who are risk takers, who are able to get to the next level do. Right. And he's like, you're, you're trying to build wealth. And the only way you can do that is to take significant risk, And that's just what it is. And that's like, that's my life, you know? <laughs> what do you think?
4: I, I mean, I'm just so impressed by that mentality and, and, And it truly is a mental shift, guys. Like as I'm speaking to Savitra and like thinking and, you know, thinking about my next question, I'm also just thinking like, damn, like you really do have to truly believe in what's possible. For example, I really think that, you know. When I hear of someone saying that they invested a million dollars or or they donated a hundred million dollars, my mind still goes through that like, you know, like my head shaking, my eyes are popping out of my head, like how, how, it just feels like, how can anyone have this much money? But at the same time, It's totally possible. It's in our reach. But we it it does require it it has a cost. And that cost is going to be risk. That cost is going to be sometimes burning the candle at both ends. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that you can get from Savitra's story, just the fact that it is possible and you just have to put in the work. So Savitra, what do you think has been the hardest challenge that you faced as you were starting either business, like one of those humble pie lessons that you've learned in this journey?
3: Man, managing people is hard. Like that has been continuously like a humbling experience, like managing people. And, you know, I think that we generally just come from like humble beginnings and we just want people to win, right? We just want people to win. And so I think that, you know, I learned really early on, um, like, it's so important to put the right people around you. And when the right people aren't around you, it's okay to let them go, right? It, it's like, it's okay to let them go. And for me, I was like, so just in tune, like just wanting people to just do well, do well, irregardless if they were doing well for my company, you know? <laughs> and I think I, I, hold on, I held on to people for way too long. And I think that was just like a very humbling experience for me um, in a, in the way that was just like, it's okay, right? It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. You know, I think, mean, and that's like really ultimately what this all boys down to, you know, like as much as we stress out over stuff, as much as we like beat ourselves up over stuff, it's like, it's going to be okay. You it know, is. it's its going to work out. <laughs>
4: And now we know with Solid Ground that you you were on Solid Ground like you it sounds like you were uh, making money and were profitable early on. Has Can you say the same with Resilia? You know, a lot of people lose money in the first few years of business. That's kind of expected as we hear pe- more people's stories on this show. What has been your experience?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were investing money, investing money, investing money, trying to get it off the ground. And then we started, you know, making money. We we're like, whew, we're making money, we're making money. Um, but then, you know, you go out and raise capital and the idea is to spark growth. And so you go back negative and then you come back out green. And so now we're like coming back out of that. And so it's this continuous process in the startup world that you're making money, you're making money, but then you're spending a lot of money. And so like, that's the thing that startups have to be so careful about with raising capital is that your investors want you to spend money and raise more money and spend money and raise more money because they want your company to continue to get these high valuations. But in doing that, you also have to have this large, you have to have traction to validate your valuations because if you raise money again and it's not valuated, you could be devalued, right? And so it's definitely like that game of... um, you know, that you go back and forth with in the startup space that I didn't have that experience in my other company because the game, the name of the game in professional services and in contracting is that you were in business to make money, period. Like that if you're not making money, what is the point of your business? But in the scalable company, it's this up and down periods that you go through because you're trying to scale and you're infusing capital into your company um, in a way that is supposed to spark growth. Um, and so we've gone from, you know, being a negative to being profitable, being negative to being profitable. And so it's just like, it's, that's the name of the game until you get to that point where you have hit your product market fit continuously to make your profits as far as uh, your milestones and what you're seeking to hit and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's definitely a journey and we're still kind of, we're pretty young.
4: Yeah. And would you say that's another kind of mental shift, getting comfortable with debt, because we're so used to feeling that, oh, this is terrible. You know, I can't spend any more money Then I'm going to go into debt.
3: (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah, I think that um, I knew that at some point I was going to either raise capital or, you know, you're not right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of startups fold because they're not able to raise capital and they just can't. They just can't like continue to inject capital right into a company or they don't have the ability to inject any capital into their company. Um, And so then the company just um, it shudders. And I think that oftentimes we have ideas and we have great ideas and solutions that we can never get off the ground because we just can't get over like the need for capital um, or resources, you know, to get it done.
4: So before we jump into the lightning round, what is next for Resilia and Savitra?
3: Um, so what's next for us? We are continuously growing uh, as a company. We have come out of this rebrand on better position, I feel, to continue to grow our enterprise uh, product and our enterprise customers. Um, we are definitely doing some hiring right now on our technical side. Um, and we're looking to open up a second office in Newark, New Jersey. Um, that's going to be a sales office. And so like that's kind of what our our big picture for this year looks like.
4: I love it. Alrighty, now let's jump into the lightning round. You know the deal, just answer the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Yes. righty. number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your businesses that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Anything at your economic development office. Like those are the resources that you need to get at minimum
4: number two what's been the best business book or podcast episode or live event that you have consumed this year
3: um I would say that it's been oh my gosh so many things um so I was listening to a podcast called it was how I built this but it was on oh my gosh I forget her name she's running like a billion dollar HR company Oh, you're talking about Ms. Janice? Ms. Janice yes. was in the side hustle pro guest here too. Yes, yes. <laughs> hers. And so many of her, like just her story in general across the board has been like really inspiring to me uh, in general. All righty. Number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your day? Non-negotiable would be having a team huddle. Uh, Like we have our team huddles. And so that's always like, all right, guys, y'all know the deal. No matter if I'm going somewhere, if I'm flying, we always have a team huddle.
4: Number four, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business?
3: Not taking things so seriously.
4: And then finally, number five, what's your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss but are worried about losing that steady paycheck?
3: Um, you have to be comfortable, right? You, you're going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? With taking risks. And then I'm not a proponent of just like leaping out without a security blanket. I'm like, ensure that you have something lined up so that you don't struggle um, going out on your own. And although there will be like setbacks and times and that you struggle, it's hard, 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 hard building a company with nothing. Because you're worried about so many other things.
4: Mm -hmm. And with that, where can people connect with you off of this
3: podcast, on the socials, all of that good stuff? Um, Savitra Wilson on social media, savitrawilson.com. My company site is resilia.co. All right. And with that, guys, there you have
4: it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly Side Hustle Diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at Pro